This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 209. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and we are here now in the month of July. We're pretty far into July, actually, by the time this episode airs. This is my time to reflect on something, and I want to challenge you, the listener, on this as well, or viewer if you're on YouTube right now for whatever weird reason. How do you feel about your year so far? This is like a good check-in point. This is like a, I call this like my second January. July is the time we have just entered the second half of the year, and we can look back on the first six months of the year and say, hey, how do we feel about this so far? Do we like this? Do we not like this? Are we happy about this? Are we not happy about this? And I don't want to shame anyone who doesn't feel great about their year so far, but this is a really good time to reflect and just think like, hey, if I'm not happy, what do I need to change in order to make the rest of my year the best year it's ever been? I've started doing this recently and I actually operate in quarters, which is four per year. So I actually have four of these resets per year. I don't expect you to do that. That's fine. That's like nerdy business stuff. That's like corporate crap, but you can at least do two of these resets a year. Look at your year in two different increments. And this is the second half of your year. This is the second, call it a fresh start if you need it. But I just don't like the thought process of not changing something that I'm really not happy about. So if you need to reset, recalibrate, look at the second January of the year and approach something new, this is the time to do it. So I'm going to challenge you right now. Look at your life. Look at your choices. What do you need to do to change things? Do you need to join a course? It doesn't have to be one of mine, by the way, any course out there ever. Like I join courses all the time. Do you need to be more participatory in a community of some sort that you're already a part of? Maybe you need to interact with people more. Do you need to get out of your damn house? and go be around people more often. If you're like me, 2020, 2021 was not a good year for socializing. So maybe we need to shake things up a little bit. So this is just kind of a little wake up call mid-year for you, for anyone listening right now to just, just shake things up. It's time to, to do a little change in. So that's all I got for you on my little, uh, my little intro rant today, a little kick in the butt, right? So today we have an interview for you that's very special because we're talking about something that so many people understand fundamentally that you probably should be doing this, but you're likely not for whatever reasons, is someone who has found their niche. And it's a niche that is very different than any other niche I've ever seen before, which is why we got him on the podcast. I'm not going to tell you what that niche is yet, but it's something that is very non-traditional when it comes to like planting your flag on the ground and saying, this is the niche that I choose or niche if you're American or whatever way you like to say that. The guest today, his name is Micah Woods and he goes by OK Micah. You can check out his website at okmicah.com if you want a little preview into what his niche is. But he's a branding and web designer based out of Los Angeles. And, and he started out like many people who was just working with their friends, working with family, with referrals, with whoever would pay them money. He was in yes mode. And he worked his way up to now where he has worked with clients that have been featured in Men's Health, Teen Vogue, Vogue Magazine, Huffington Post. I think they go by HuffPost now. I don't know. But he's, he's doing some really cool stuff as a designer now. All of this can be credited to the fact that he chose a very specific niche. And he did this in a way that I usually don't say to try, which is he just said, this is my niche now. Hopefully this works. And it really did work for him. Whereas most people I say, be a little more broad and try to, to kind of have your niche choose you. I thought it was a really good interview, really great guy. And I think you're going to get a lot of this interview, whether or not you have found the niche that you want to be a part of, whether or not you even think you need a niche. This episode is something you absolutely need to consume. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Micah Woods. Micah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. We were talking off air before this and, um, I just love having people like you on the show because you have done something that so many of our listeners are trying to accomplish, and that is start their own freelance business. Specifically, you are a designer and a brand expert. I don't actually, you do branding and web design kind of together. And you actually started this pretty recently, as early as what was it, 2020? And I'd love to start there in, this, in your journey of how you got started as a freelancer, the catalyst being COVID, the whole COVID wave that came through and what happened there. So start us on the journey there because there's a lot that you've done, I think, the right way. We're going to get into some of those things that, that have really set you apart from the other designers in, in your space, which is, a, I would say, pretty saturated, pretty hard to stand out niche. And you've done an amazing job of doing that. But start us on the journey of where you got into being a freelancer. Totally. I like to call myself a pandemic freelancer because, like you said, it was because of the pandemic. I was working as a songwriter and designer for a pretty big company you might have heard of called Sony. It was a dream job. It was like exactly what I wanted to be doing because it was allowing me to write, which was like the passion that I've always had, as well as design, which is another passion of mine. So it was this perfect hybrid. 
And then the pandemic hit and I had been one of the more recent hires and pretty much knew that I was going to get let go. So that was really, really difficult at first. And I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I knew that I had always wanted to sort of freelance. It was something that I had like dabbled with in the past, like for friends, like doing projects on the side. And this was the perfect opportunity that sort of pushed me and I don't want to say forced me into it, but it did kind of force me into it, which in retrospect, I'm really glad it did because it was an amazing opportunity. And I don't know that if, I don't think that I ever would have taken the leap if I hadn't been forced into it. So I pretty much just decided to go freelance and started tapping into my friends and community and hitting people up and letting them know like, hey, this is what I'm doing on my own now if you hear of anything if you know of anyone and slowly people would be like sending me like hey my friend's looking for this hey my friend's looking for this and it sort of just snowballed into turning into too many opportunities coming in where I finally had to decide who did I really want to work with yeah so you were you're in the spot that so many people are find themselves in it is a job some people hate the job some people like the job you seem to like the job because it was working with a big company that everyone's heard of and you were songwriting which is a fun creative outlet you were creating album art and tour art and posters and things like that, which is another creative outlet. So it's not like you were doing some soulless job uh, where you're under like, what's the fluorescent lights in a cubicle, pushing pencils and paper and stuff. It was like something that was pretty fulfilling, which actually made it more difficult for you to ever leave and go pursue something on your own. So when the pandemic came, the decision was made for you. So what was your mind at when the decision came that they were going to let you go? And did you immediately want to go jump and find another job just for the stability? Did you know it was coming and you prepared financially? Like, where were you at at the point that they had let you go? Yeah, I knew that it was coming because one of my best friends who helped me get the job told me that it was coming and basically warned me and said, just so you know, like, I'm in these meetings where they're talking about you and other people. So you should be ready to be let go. So I knew that it was like, okay, time to not tap into that savings. Don't go on that, whatever you want to do, hold on to that money because you're going to need it for the next couple months. So I definitely was prepared in terms of finances, but I wasn't prepared emotionally for that. And I wasn't ready to jump back into another job or look for another job because I felt like nobody needed anyone. It felt like more work to try and convince people to hire me than to just hire myself. Talk about the emotional side of things, because that, that's something that I haven't heard someone talk about when it came to like transitioning out of a full-time corporate job or, or even like anything that's not doing exactly what you want to do or anything that's not doing freelance. I've never heard the emotional transition there. Talk about what that was like and what, what were you expecting or what did you experience that you didn't expect that was emotionally difficult? Like, what, Tell me about that. Yeah, I don't think that I expected it to affect my image of myself. I think that I thought that I was grounded in my skill set and grounded in my what I bring to the table and what I offer, but feeling like that I was let go only because I was recently hired, I didn't expect it to make me feel less than as a creative, and it did. I knew why I was being let go, but I didn't expect myself to feel like I was being let go because I was less than. But the story that I ended up telling myself was that you weren't kept on because you weren't good enough. That was really, really challenging. And it definitely affected my self-image of myself and my mental health and actually like put me in a little bit of a depression. And thankfully, the freelance journey was successful and helped me get out of that. But it was really hard at first to even like want to get up and look for freelance clients. And this is the hard part about being a, a freelancer is it, typically you don't have a clear path on like what to do when you feel this way. And like I say all the time in this podcast, there's no separation between you as a person and your business as a freelancer or your soon-to-be business as a freelancer because you hadn't really made the transition to a freelancer yet. So you were dealing with a self-doubt. You didn't have like colleagues to talk to really because you had just been let go. Like it can feel lonely. So I, I want to just say just anyone that has, is feeling that right now, maybe you are, you're doubting yourself right now. There's a time to feel it. And I don't want to say people just to shelf those feelings and shelf that, but you do get past it eventually. And, and it sounds like you did. What were some of the things that helped you get past the self-doubt, maybe the imposter syndrome, maybe the lack of feeling like you wanted to take action on something? Because there may have been a moment where you ate like, you know, ate a pint of ice cream and, and cried or whatever. You know, like, I'm not saying that's what you did, but like some people like they cope in different ways. So there might have been that moment of like, I'm going to let this like affect me in a really bad way and then I'm going to move on. Or like, how was that transition for you? Yeah, I think it was allowing myself to feel that way and knowing that this too shall pass. And rather than like getting down on myself for feeling that way or in the moments where I 
felt like I wasn't doing enough rather than telling myself I wasn't doing enough, allowing myself to not do enough and just being accepting of it and not judging myself for feeling normal feelings that every freelancer feels. And even I feel like I just got over one where I was like, I am so uninspired and like, I don't have the energy to get up and do what I know I have to do. And I'm going to put it off today. And it's okay to sit down and watch, check out for a day, like give yourself this space. I think that that was the best way that I could get out of it and the best way I knew how to get out of it. And I'm really grateful that I didn't judge myself for being human. (laughs) That's the only way to get out of it. I think the worst thing you can do is beat yourself up for feeling that way, telling yourself your feelings are invalid and that you shouldn't feel this way. And that usually just makes you feel worse. And then you go to this downward spiral. So like giving yourself the freedom to say, it's okay. I feel like shit right now. And I might feel this way for a a little bit of time. And my coping mechanism is I'm just going to play video games, take my mind out of it and like not do any work. And I go through cycles too. Like I've, I have an app on my, all my computers. It's called rescue time. I don't know if you've ever tried this out, Micah. It's amazing. I subscribe to the premium version have been since like 2015 or 2016. Maybe the coolest thing is this gives myself grace is that I can see on there with like red lines that go down or green lines that go up, my productivity at a macro scale. Meaning like when I zoom out, I can see how productive I am. And here's the funny thing is every year, there is like a two to three month span where the red just bottoms out. And it's just like non-productive time, wasted time on YouTube, wasted time playing video games. And I found that that's okay. I call it my recharge time. And I have to give myself grace when I'm in one of these funks where I don't get anything done. It's not the same as like being let go. But again, as creatives, we, we just have to accept that we're not going to be perfect all the time. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we're going to get the freedom to be creative and feel inspired and keep moving forward. So let's talk about getting your first few gigs there because that's a, that's a hard point, especially when you're in like a low point in your life when you just got let go from a job that you loved and the whole world's gone to shit a little bit because the pandemic and like, I don't know what the timeline is around this time, but it's probably, you know, spring, summer, 2020, when you started to shift to being freelance, what was it like trying to get your first few clients? Cause some people, they might have tried the thing where they're going out and hitting up their friends and no one's seeing them work. But it seems fortunate that you did come from a background. Where you probably had a really good, robust portfolio to show off your work. You were, were really good at that point. And you still are at what you do and what you were doing then. But what was the experience like trying to get your first handful of clients? Because I feel like those are the hardest ones to get sometimes. It was really hard. I think that it was uh, it was frustrating to feel like even the people that I would reach out to that would just ignore the email or ignore the text was the hardest part. And the first client that I had was actually my best friend's sister who was starting a company. And so that was felt easy because it was like, okay, I already have a relationship with this person. They know who I am. They know the work I do. So there was a little bit less of a trying to convince them that I was worthy of the work. I think that will say that was probably the hardest part of those first couple of months was just like trying to convince people that I deserve to work for them. Even though I knew that I did and I knew that I had the work to show for it and they knew it, they just were like, who is this kid? Like, so I think that it was the hardest part was also remembering that like I could be creating work without having somebody tell me to create work. And I think that that was what led to a lot of the work that I ended up getting was just keeping myself going and keeping making passion projects for myself and working on things on the side when there was nobody telling me to do it. And to just like have friends who were like, I'm thinking about doing this and being like, I'll just create something for free. Like I'm down, like, let me show your work. And so like, let me create something for you. You need this. Like I got you, like, let me help you make your dreams come true kind of sort of thing. And so that was, uh, I think that helped me a lot and just helped me build that more freelance portfolio and more specific to the work that I wanted to be creating rather than, you know, I didn't necessarily want to keep creating like tour merch and stuff like that. I knew that I was more interested in like the brand and web design of things. So I didn't necessarily have the portfolio that showcased that. So I was forced to sort of do passion projects and do work for free or for like very little. Like my first freelance project, the one, the friend of my best friend, she paid me like $500 for a full website and brand. And like in retrospect, I'm like, wow, she's so lucky. (laughs) But it was what needed to be done. And like she, when she has friends starting brands or whenever they need assets and stuff, like they reach out to me and obviously I charge them what I'm worth now. And she understands that. And I think is grateful for the fact that like, I'm also grateful that she took a chance on me in a way, even though she didn't really. But I try to also give that same courtesy in retrospect of like, you did take a chance on me and you're the reason that I'm even like kept going. So let's keep going. That's great. So 
you got the first client there. You were getting a bit of momentum. My, my first client, by the way, was also a friend of mine. It was somebody in my local area who I already had a relationship with. So there was already that no like, and trust factor there that I have to build it up, which is really hard to do for your first handful of clients, especially if you don't haven't invested anything into content like social media or building a website or any way to really like sell without really having a, a one-to-one connection. So anyway, so you had this first client. I'm assuming that this led to referrals, which is obviously a good thing, but you were also out there doing work to get more clients on top of that. Cause like, I know you knew this inherently because you're not, A, you're way more mature than most freelancers when they first start out. B, you'd already worked a corporate job and like, you knew what it was like to work at a high level. So you knew that you weren't just going to be like, I'm waiting around for clients to find me, which is the, the default thing that freelancers do. So what were you doing while waiting for work to come in in order to get more clients? You were doing this free work, which I love because people are too proud to do that sort of stuff or low paying work just to get the portfolio built up because you were really completely moving services. You were going from like, poster and merch, moving complete to a different like type of client, a different like niche, which we'll even get into your niche a bit more uh, as we get into this. But yeah, what were you doing as far as like day-to-day actions? Cause you didn't have someone managing you. That's the difficult part is being a freelancer is you don't have a manager there watching over your shoulder saying, all right, do this now, Micah. Totally. I think that, and this is what most people, when they're like, I want to go freelance, how do I find clients? I was messaging everybody and anyone. Post that friend, every client I got after that was somebody that I had just messaged and been like, hey, I'm doing this. I like what you're doing. Do you need anything? Hey, I noticed on your website, this is a little off. Like, would you be open to having me come in and redesign this? The amount of cold DMs that I sent and the amount of people that I just sort of like just showed that I cared about their brand and like did my research about their brand and noticed things that I do can help. That's when I noticed that the ball was really rolling was when I would say for every like 60 to 70 DMs I sent, I maybe got two responses. But of those two responses, those became clients. So I think that that was the hard learn was that you just can't stop telling people that you want to work. And I think that that's something that a lot of freelancers forget is the way to avoid the feast and famine is to like market yourself and continually tell people that you want to work. And I think that we forget that. And I forget that sometimes. And I'm like, I haven't posted on Instagram in two months. And so I know two months from now, I'm going to be like, damn, I need to, I need work. So it's so hard because we have so much to do. And like, there's so much more that goes into it than just like designing. We have to also be a business and constantly market ourselves and show up all day, every day. I call it the client acquisition tax. It's like when you're first starting out, it's like at least a 20% tax of your time and effort has to go into specific like client acquisition strategies. As you get bigger and as you get more referrals and you get a better client pool, that number falls down significantly. And for some people it just goes to zero and you just have clients coming to you all the time, but people don't pay their client acquisition tax. And the work you do now trying to, to get clients is this, the clients are going to come in two to three months from now. So it's like, that's the fees or famine. It's like, I'm going to be broke in three months because I'm not doing anything right now. And, and people don't understand that. So with cold outreach, and sending DMs to people. This is an area I see some people do successfully. I see some people struggle with, and I see some people refuse to do it. And I have mixed emotions about it. Did you feel like you were bothering people? Did you feel like, were you reluctant to start it? Or were you just like, I am going to make this work no matter what. I will do anything within my realm of morals and boundaries. I will do anything. And DMs, I'll do. Like, what was your your thought process when you started doing that? Yeah, I... Don't think I cared that I was bothering people, but I knew that I was. But it was less important to me to worry about what they think and more important to me that like maybe they actually will want this. And so I get DMs all the time on Instagram from people wanting to work for me or wanting to do work with me. That's like, okay, like, cool. I don't have anything for you right now, but I'm glad that you're reaching out. Like, it doesn't bother me when people do it. So I think that in retrospect, like, it was good that I didn't care if I was bothering people because I don't think that I really was. It's one of those things where it's like, you want that DM to show up at the right time. It's not so much that the person is bothered by you DMing them. It's more so, is that DM coming into them at the exact moment that they are looking for you? And if it is, then they're going to reply, then they're going to reach out. And it's like, it feels like kismet for them, but you know it's not because you're sending this to so many people. So you're doing the hard work to make sure that when you're reaching out to people that they know you exist so that they can hire you because they want to hire you if they need you. Some people may need your service and not even know it or they know it and they're avoiding it. There's like a lot of things like hiring a copywriter right now is one of those for me. 
I've done some research. I found some websites. I found a couple of copywriters. I got a little list together on my, in my Evernote, but no one's reached out to me about copy. And if you looked at my website and maybe some of the emails I send out and you were a good copywriter, you would spot some opportunities to say, man, Brian, he's got a, it's got a very large email list in you know, regards to most people, like 30, 40,000 people. It's not a tiny email list. You're emailing all these people and your copy sucks, Brian. We could probably improve this a bit. Why don't we sit down and have a strategy session and we talk about how you can improve your copy and maybe we can work together on some stuff. If someone did that and they were like genuinely good, I would seriously consider them, but no one's doing that. Now, maybe they will after hearing me say that, but that's just one of those things. It's like, it's on the back burner for me. I haven't made actions towards it, but no one's DM me about it. That's for sure. And so it's a need I have that I haven't really taken action on that if someone happened to land a DM in my inbox and we're good, that's the important part, then I might consider it. And so you were looking at people's websites and you were seeing things that were out of proportion and looked weird or looked wrong. And then you were sending them a message and personalizing it. It wasn't just spam. You were personalizing and saying, hey, I noticed that your website looks like absolute shit. <laughs> I'm joking. You didn't say that. But you're saying there's some things wrong with it. Have you ever thought about redesigning it? You know, that's, I like that sort of approach. And the other thing that kind of stood out there is you're sending like 60, 70 DMs to get one or two clients. I think most people, they'll send like 20 or 30 out and like, man, no one replied to me. This doesn't work. And then they move on. So the consistency there is a huge part of that as well. So let's move on to like your transition to full-time now. Somewhere in there, you kind of found a niche and you started planting your flag on the ground saying, this is what I stand for. This is my niche. This is who I'm going after. But I don't think that probably came immediately. So what was the transition from like, I don't want to call it nickel and dime work, but $500 website is nickel and dime work, you know, like doing nickel and dime work, like doing stuff for free and for cheap and just saying you're in yes mode, like the early phase freelancer. What was the transition like to where you finally started taking this seriously and go full time? Yeah. So I think that the, the moment that I knew that this was a full time gig was when I had people coming to me and I wasn't really needing to constantly be doing cold outreach. So when there came a point where it was like, actually, I don't have the bandwidth to take that on. That's kind of the moment that I was like, okay, wait, take a step back. You've built something here and you kind of have a wait list of people that want to work with you and who are coming to you. And so for me, that was the moment that I knew that I could be selective with who I wanted to work with. And I was noticing a trend in the people that I liked working with and that brought me joy to work with. So that's kind of when I realized that I wanted to niche down and really work with a very specific select group of people that felt like fun to me. Well, go ahead and like, tell everybody, what is, what is your niche? We've danced around it. And I don't know how much I said in the intro because I haven't made the intro yet. But like, tell our audience, like, what is the niche that you've chosen? Because it's, it's one of the most unique I've seen. I haven't seen anyone else say, this is my niche. We'll definitely talk a ton about this. So I kind of want to talk about how it came to be. So I felt like in the work that I was doing and the clients that I was working with, there was sort of a lack of understanding of who I am as a person. And so it was a lot of dealing with being like mispronounced or words that made me feel uncomfortable or like a lack of understanding of who I am as a queer person. But then I was working with queer business owners and there was such a like spark of joy that came from it and being able to be like, did you watch Drag Race last night? I watched Drag Race last night. And like being able to like talk about things that like made it not feel like boring in corporate and to be able to have that camaraderie. And so I noticed that I did a lot of research before fully diving into the niche of serving queer founders and queer businesses. I just noticed that nobody was offering anything to them. It's tough because I thought at first I was like, this is too broad of a niche. Like, how is anybody going to think that this is worth niching into? Because I feel like most things you see with freelance, it's like you have to get really granular and you can only focus on one thing. And I was like, okay, well, I enjoy making a restaurant website just as much as I enjoy making a beauty bread website. But the part that I don't enjoy is when the founder sucks. So why can't I focus on who the person that I'm going to be working with, like that community, I can actually just choose that as a niche rather than feeling like I'm forced to only work with one specific type of business, because that to me sounds boring. And if you're just doing kind of like the same thing over and over again, you just probably end up templatizing your workflow. And I'm very much the type of person that needs to be constantly challenged and constantly learning new things. So that felt like an opportunity of like, Here's this group of people who probably is also frustrated by working with people who don't understand them. I can be that person in a sort of like tech bro world who actually understands them and can like talk to them like the human that they are and understands where they 
come from. And there can just be like a sense of community within our working relationship, but also with all the brands that I'm working with and to help them realize that they don't have to hide who they are. Because I think sometimes as queer people, it's so ingrained in us to hide who we are from such a young age that we forget that even in adulthood and as business owners, that we are supposed to like keep that a secret because somebody might not buy our product. But the reality is, do you want that person buying your product if they don't like who you are as a person? Probably not. Yeah. So this is like, I, I would call this what, like a values-driven niche? Because like on your website, you say our values, inclusive, community, quality. And it's more than that. I know that, but I'm just saying like, I love having something you stand for as part of your niche and kind of talking about what you said there. Like I grew up in Alabama. So like the expectation, the attitude towards the queer community, how they were treated, how they were talked about was like, I grew up around some really hateful shit growing up in Alabama. And so like, I've seen all of the worst stuff you could possibly say. And now as like a 35 year old adult, some of my favorite friends and people around me are in that community in some way, shape or form. I hate seeing people judged or hated just based on something that they stand for or something that, that is just who they are. Like, and so I love that this is the niche that you have chosen as a designer. And you said like, I'm not going to just do restaurant websites. I'm not going to do real estate websites and I'm not going to go in it for the money. It's like, I'm in it for the values and like serving a specific community and serving them really well. And it, in a community that may have been like underserved in some way, shape or form where it's like, there hasn't been a person who I've seen plant the flag on the ground for like that community doing web design stuff. And I feel like even if you aren't in that community or part of that community, you're probably still getting clients who love and support that community and support the values that you are standing for and want to hire you just because of that. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're shaking your head. Yes. So I assume that that's the case. It is. I think that like, it's funny because I would say probably 40% of my clients actually are queer business owners and the other 60% are just like good people who come to me because they see the values. And they also, I think it's like, there's a lot of joy that comes with my branding and my community. And I think that the clients that I'm getting want their brand to emote that same feeling. So I think that that's a big part of it as well is like, they better be allies. I know that they're allies because that's like, otherwise they wouldn't want to work with me. So I think that it's, it's so great to see that they, it's also that they want to build brands that include people. And like the whole reason typically why they're starting their business is because they've noticed that like a lot of brands in that world aren't inclusive. And so they're trying to break the mold or like my site says, break the binary and do something different. So I think that that's a big part of it as well Is like, yes, I work with queer businesses, but I also work with people who love the values and the sort of like mold breaking essence of the queer community and want their brand to do the same. There's, I mean, there's so many different directions to go with this, but when I look at your website and this is what made me like the second I saw your website, I was like, I've got to get Mike on the podcast is you said it, it sparks joy. It's like everything on your website is so happy. There's a disco ball rolling around in the background it's a colorful, bright website and your copywriter is incredible. Like the copy on your site is so fun. Like even for those of you who are, who can just go to okmica.com and you go to the work with us tab, I'm going to try something that I have not tried to do before. And that is if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can just see the screen. I'm going to share the screen here. Even your application page is like so fun to work with. Cause like if you look at most designers or any kind of application page for a freelancer, it's usually like, what's your name? What, what do you need? What services do you need? Tell me like a little bit about the project. Like it, it's just very dry. You've got things like spill the tea on your business. What do you do? And what's your mission? Everyone has a drag name. What's yours? Like you got Barbie Brown in there. Is that your drag name? That is my drag name. Yep. I got to find out <laughs> what mine is. It'd be Brianna something. I don't know what the last name would be. You can just have that percolate in your background. What mine would be. I was going to say it could be like Brianna Red Riding Hood. <laughs> That's great. Actually, I love that. Brianna Red Riding Hood. That's great. But I've never seen someone ask a drag name or like put personality into something as mundane as like a typical quote request form. You even have here, like, if you could click your heels three times and say, there's no place like home, where would you be? This sort of stuff to me is what sets you apart as, as just another freelancer, just doing websites and branding. Like, and you don't get to really do that and be that playful without planting your flag in some sort of niche and being values driven like you are that allows for so much more playfulness because if that sort of stuff turns you off, you are not the right person for Micah's business. So like you have the best filter that exists as far as I know of weeding out the worst types of clients for you. And so many people are so concerned with trying to appeal to everyone that again, they appeal to no one. So you've said, I serve this small group and this small group loves me and I love them. And anyone that's not a part of this group, 
I say small group, I don't mean that, you know what I mean? But in the grand scheme of all people in the world, it's a relatively small group. And if you're not a part of this or you don't support this, then I am not the right person for you. And it's worked really well for you. It's the best to not have to deal with bad people. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers, number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. How did you get from what I'd call your niche hypothesis to actually like moving forward with that? Because like to me, a niche hypothesis is like, I would do really well in this niche or want to serve this market or I want to work with these types of values or I want to do this service. How did you go from this hypothesis that like this is the community that could serve? But then this is also going to be a viable business because as freelancers, we have to have kind of the balance between like the business hat and, you know, the service hat or the values hat. What was your, the process going from this hypothesis to reality? Yeah, I will be honest and say that I wasn't sure that it was going to work. And I don't want to say I was sure that it wouldn't, but I had a lot of doubt in it because it was so different than what anybody else was doing. But I just had this gut feeling that I knew who I wanted to work with and the type of people I wanted to work with. So I felt that by sticking to what I felt was the right thing to do was the right thing to do. But I will be the first to say that in the back of my brain, I was telling myself, you should be only working with beauty brands because that's what I saw everybody else was doing. So it felt really scary to go from hypothesis to reality But I just went for it and knew that if it's going to work, it's going to work. And if it doesn't, we can always do what everybody else is doing because we know that works. So I think that it was less about knowing it was going to work and like trying to see if it was going to work and more of just like hoping that it would work because I wanted it to. And I think I put the horse before the cart a little bit and just sort of went for it and was like, hey, write the copy for this. Hey, design this. Like it was just like, let's build something and hope that people come. And I'm lucky that they did. I would say in a lot of cases, the building and then hoping doesn't necessarily work out well, but I I think you listening to your gut in this instance was the right move. I feel like a lot of people, they, they may want to go a direction, but they're looking to their left and to the right and they haven't seen other people doing it. And that's the scariest place to be. It is unproven ground. You are now blazing new trails But the payoff, if you are the one to blaze the trail, the first one to get to the whatever's on the other side, it can be either bad and you have to backtrack and start all over again, or it can be amazing because you're the first one there in this beautiful promised land or whatever. I don't know what kind of picture I'm painting here, but like it can be scary is all I'm saying. You don't, you don't have a proven path to follow. You were talking about writing copy and designs and stuff. Like what was some of the steps you took to actually roll out this re-niche or this new niche that you were doing? Like what was some of the, the, the practical steps you took to say, this is what I'm, what I'm going to try? Yeah. So the first thing I did, which was something that I hadn't really seen anybody else do also, was I decided to hire a brand designer to design my brand because I felt like everything that I was designing for it didn't feel... It was like I was trying too hard and I felt like it was easier to have somebody else come in and see me for who I am and... S- And like, it's easy for me to speak to the target audience and all of that, but I was struggling to take myself out of it. So it wasn't in line with what I knew that it should be. So I collaborated with a brand designer, Mackenzie Bird, who was absolutely amazing and did such a great job. And then from there, I hired a copywriter who happens to also be my partner, who's very, very talented and obviously knows me very well. 
I love his work and I hired him specifically because he doesn't do anything like anybody else and isn't afraid to be like extremely ridiculous and quirky and silly and like takes risk with copy, which a lot of copywriters I feel like don't do because they're like too afraid to like do something different, but he's not. And so I knew that he was going to be perfect for the job and also easy to hire somebody you love. So I knew that if I had somebody design a brand, I could turn that into a website. And I think that it was so much easier for me once they had sort of like done the sort of groundwork for me of like, here's the base, now take it and run with it. So it was so much fun to be able to like have those building blocks that I could then build off of and turn into what a lot of people see as the brand now. For anyone who hasn't been to okmica.com, just go to the site and play around with it, especially if you're on desktop, like when you move your mouse around, little animations happen. It's such a fun experience. And I, I'm pretty sure you're using Webflow for your website. I haven't seen that sort of animation stuff on any other platform besides Webflow. But for those of you who are listening right now who aren't web designers and understand Webflow, it's not something you just pick up in a day and, and run off with. It's, it's pretty complex. I've tried to play around with it. It's not for me, which is why people like Micah have a job in doing this sort of stuff. So talk about some of the results that you've seen as you roll this new brand out. Was it immediately like a smash hit? Was it like a slow burn? Like how did that whole thing pan out? Yeah, I think it, I'm lucky that it was a smash hit, but the reason that I think it was a smash hit was because of the sort of features that the site got. Webflow immediately after launching featured it on their showcase page and like a few Instagrams showcased it and like it was on like Landbook or whatever I think it's called. Like a lot of these like sort of where people go for website inspiration posted the site. So it was very quickly seen by a lot of people. And so the immediate response was like, we've never seen anything like this. Clients were coming to me and being like, I've, the second I saw your website, I knew that I was supposed to work with you because I'd been looking for this. I'd been looking for this type of site and you have captured it. So I was really lucky that it was an immediate hit. And I will say that I still today have moments of like, am I doing the right niche? <laughs> and then I have conversations like this or, co- or discovery calls with clients who just like reinforce like, how special it feels and like the joy that it brings them. And it's like, yes, you're on the right path. Don't doubt yourself. Like you said, stop looking left to right and just like keep blazing that trail and being different. And I think as designers, we all have constant identity crisis where we just like want to change everything. And that's okay. I try to remind myself like you've built this brand and like have at this point brand recognition with it. It's not helpful to get rid of that and to change everything. And you have people wanting to work with you still and you're still creating work that you love. So don't quit. It could be so easy for us as creatives to get so bored of our own stuff and want to reinvent the wheel like every three to six months. And it takes a very mature freelancer to look at themselves and think, it's only boring to me. <laughs> this is only, it's only not fresh to me because there's still tons of people who this is the first time they're ever experiencing this thing that I created or this brand that I built or this business that I've done or this website that I've run the copy for or whatever. Like this is the first time experiencing it. So to them, it's brand new and fun and interesting. And I've just got to step back and realize that it's not about me. It's about them. It's about the experience that they're going through. It's about that client experience. So Let's talk about some of the things that has helped since then bring in new clients. Because you said in another interview I heard you on, which is another awesome podcast for those who don't know, it's a podcast called Being Freelance. We found you on that podcast. So shout out to them. But you said that you had about 40% of your work came from referrals, which is a a number that I see all over the place, actually. Around 30 to 50% seems to be the standard for most freelancers is just referral work from, from past clients or repeat work. But you said a big chunk of it is from Instagram. Is that from your personal account or your business account or a mixture of both? Yeah, mostly just my business account. When I first started the OK Micah Instagram, I knew that there was no way that I could manage both or like I didn't want to manage both. Like it felt like too much work to run to Instagram. So I decided to just go full in on the OK Micah Instagram and just let that be my life. And still to this day, friends are like, which one am I supposed to tag? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> either one. But I will say most of the business that I'm getting comes from the OK Micah Instagram. I've maybe had like one person go from Micah T. Woods into the OK Micah Instagram funnel. But yeah, mostly just the OK Micah Instagram. I imagine that because of the niche that you've chosen, it limits you, but also opens you up to the content you're creating. Because like you have a clear kind of direction that you would go after. This is the wonderful thing about a niche is focus. And when I see people who are very broad in what they're doing, their content creation. Instagram, if they're doing a podcast, if they're doing like YouTube or like longer form content or short form content like TikTok and Instagram, it's a struggle to create content that's relevant because 
you could talk about anything for anyone. And so you can't, you can't decide what to talk about. So talk about like how you come up with things that you're going to post online to grow that following uh, for OK Micah's Instagram account. Yeah, I will say I totally agree. Like my niche allows me to, it made creating sort of my content strategy pillars so easy. You know, it was like, okay, so I can talk about community. I can talk about being a queer entrepreneur. I can talk about my services and how my identity services that community. So it was really easy for me to, and still is easy for me to create content fairly quickly. I think that I see a lot of designers like really struggle to come up with like, what am I, what should I be posting? What should I be doing? And I am lucky that I don't have that problem. Because I can be like, oh, it's the first day of Pride. Like, okay, create a quick post and post it and it'll do well because my community expects that from me and they want that from me. So it's so easy for me to like look at the month of June and see, okay, which days are special days? Or like, oh, Trans Visibility Week is coming up. I can create a post for that. Oh, look at this new queer business that's actually being inclusive of queer people. This new non-binary makeup line. Like I can talk about that. So it's so much easier for me to come up with content to create. And it also is helping my audience find me because they're looking for that. And there's not a lot of people doing that. So if somebody types in the hashtag, like queer business, my posts come up because that's what's like the algorithm is pushing. So it definitely makes my life easy in terms of social strategy. And it also helps with engagement because people aren't going to follow me unless they want that content. So they when they're following me, they know what they are getting from me and it only just like helps the algorithm. So nobody's following me and then not liking my posts. I mean, obviously people do, but there's definitely a sense of like, hey, what has he posted in a while? Like, what are they up to? That type of stuff. So it's fairly simple for me. And I try to tell my clients that too, of like, it's important for you to understand your values and the community that you're serving, because that will make every decision that you make in your business 10 times easier. If you try to stand for everything, then again, you stand for nothing and no one, which is a very difficult place to be. I'm looking at your Instagram feed right now, and it's like, you also do something that I don't see people doing enough of, and you do a, a pretty good job of this, is spotlighting other people, not just it being about you. So I see on, on Juneteenth, you posted black and queer brands to go support. You're helping your community by showcasing all these other brands to your following, which is easy and also the right thing to post for your social strategy. I see one for, for queer founder spotlight. In, probably people you've worked with or people you want to work with, which is a great strategy to do. It just opens up these opportunities that are relatively easy for you to come up with because it's like, I'm going to spotlight these businesses. And so I just got to find the right ones that I can put my, my stamp of approval on to promote that are doing the right things or the right type of people that I want to spotlight on here. And it's just like, to me, that's a, a great place to be. One of my favorite books we've had the author on the show is The Go-Giver. And this is kind of like that go-giver mentality of like helping other people not being all about myself and, and me. It's about these other people that we're trying to help support or promote or include in our, our social feeds. With Instagram, do you have any sort of like strategy that you have found has been effective for growing a following? Because your personal one has, I don't know, 12, 15,000 followers, which is a substantial following. Your, but your business one has three to 4,000 followers, something like that, which is in the grand scheme of, of Instagram is not massive, but it's definitely not small. And it's bringing in clients for you, a, a substantial amount of them. And so I love seeing people that don't have hundreds of thousands of followers on the show who are bringing in freelance clients because that seems much more attainable to most people. When I have someone like Made by James who has like 100, 200,000 followers on the show or Peggy Dean on the show who had, you know, 250,000 followers, really hard to say, I'll just do that, you know? But when someone has two or 3,000 followers, just bringing in clients for the freelance business, that's, that's more attainable. Love to know about some of the things that you've done to facilitate that sort of following above and beyond just being in a, a very tight knit niche. Yeah, I think it's a common misconception that you need 100,000 followers to run a successful freelance business. I definitely thought that in the beginning, I was like, I'm not going to have clients till I have over 10,000 followers. But that's not true. And I think that the biggest success that I've found is just to show up. I think a lot of people forget that. Like the number one rule of social media is that you're marketing yourself. So you need to be showing up as much and as often as possible so that people know you exist. The whole point is just the continuation of existing. And I, I will say that I think some of the best things that have come to me have been, like you said, giving and not hope. Well, obviously, you're hoping to get something in return, but like those queer founder spotlight, that turned into a client from that. The spotlighting businesses, those businesses reposted my stuff and they have huge, massive followings. So it's just kind of like 
creating content for yourself, but also for your community, I think is the biggest thing. And I think that that's what's helped me gain the following as quickly as I have. And also has made the Instagram algorithm into thinking that like I'm something that people should care about because people are sharing the work that I'm doing and they're saving the work that I'm doing. And people are like, oh, that's a cool list. I would love to like support those brands save. So it's, I think it's important to think of it like from that point of view is like, how are you giving back to the people that are following you rather than thinking what you want them to see? It's like, what do they deserve? What should you be giving to them? You are swimming in the bluest of blue oceans. There's a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy for those who haven't read it or heard of it. To be fairly honest with you, I've never actually read the book, but I understand the gist of it, which is basically there's red ocean and there's blue ocean. Red ocean is just being a branding or website designer for all people and offering a million services. I could go find 20,000 of them on on Fiverr right now. I could go find 20,000 more on Upwork right now. I could find 20,000 dead websites of people that tried and failed to be in that market. And that's a red ocean. And it's really hard to survive when there's sharks in there and it's just everyone's drowning. And it's just picture that in your head of like how chaotic it's like a scene from Jaws or something. Meanwhile, Mike is over here in his blue ocean and it's a wonderful like experience. It's like a hot spring. We'll call it that. It's like a blue hot spring. And like, it's like a spa, you know what I mean? Like it's way more, it's a serene. There's like a, a sunrise in the, in the distance with some mist in the air. And it's like this wonderful spa-like atmosphere. And that's this area that you've carved out. And it's so much easier to stand out, to get engagement in the post because everyone stands behind that small community. And I, my background was I played uh, straight out of high school in a heavy metal band, a Christian heavy metal band. And we toured the world and we were in this really tight niche metal core community. And we would be like all the little scene kids at the mall, you know, would be hanging out at Hot Topic and we would like give each other nods. Don't know who you are, but we're going to talk and we're going to hang out because we're this weird these weird kids, all my band members stretched their ears and had tattoos and, you know, they look the specific way. And so like that sort of tight knit community is really easy to exist in because it's a blue ocean. It's not this like oversaturated world where everyone's this just competing and eating each other. I don't know how else to say it, but the blue ocean thing is, is a wonderful place to be. And you got there, Micah, because you had the bravery to forge your own path to find that hot spring in the, I don't know where I'm losing the analogy here, but you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yes. I'm lounging on the gay beach. There's no kids. Everybody's chill. Everybody's having a good time. Everything's great. <laughs> yes. All right. So um, to kind of wrap this conversation up here, I love kind of going into some lighter topics and something that's not you know, challenging our listeners to find a blue ocean, which is a difficult thing to do. I like talking about tools and things. So let's talk about some of your favorite freelancing tools, things that you use and can't live without as a freelancer because again, we were talking beforehand, you're very business-minded. I can tell this, I know our audience can tell this, but you're self-admitted like a business owner, you naturally gravitate towards trying new things out and testing new things and being kind of like me where I'm like a marketing nerd. I like to shelve the creativity for a moment and focus on the fun nerd tech stuff. So let's talk about that for a minute. What are some of your favorite tools as a freelancer you just cannot live without? I would say it's easy for me to think of it like in process. So the first tool that clients use with me and that I can't live without is Dupesado, which is that inquiry form that we looked at on the site is through Dupesado. It's a form. And then it sends me an email that says, Hey, new lead coming through. And then I love it so much because you can set up workflows where all I have to do is like click a button that says like approve. And if like, I'll look at their inquiry and be like, yeah, they're worth working for. I just click approve. It sends them an email that's like, Hey, book a call with me you know, I think we're a great fit. Here we go. And it's like, seems like it's an email that I'm typing up every time, but all I'm doing is clicking a button. And then they book a call through my calendar and then post that call. I can either be like, yes or no. If I say yes, then it's like, pushes me through like my proposal funnel, which all my proposals go through there. All I have to do is like select the packages that we talked about. The proposal is automatically built for me. It sends them proposal contract invoice with one link and it's all automated. And I'm onboarding clients in like 30 seconds rather than like spending hours making proposals, which like, I think a lot of people forget that you can just send people the same thing over and over again because they don't know that they're getting the same thing over yeah, and over templates again. Templates are amazing. Templates are amazing. They're so essential. And so then once they sign, once they accept the proposals, sign contract, pay their first invoice, it sends them an email that's like, hey, welcome to the fan. Here's a link to our Slack channel. Everything is automated. So I'm spending very little time onboarding clients. 
So that's a huge one for me. Jibsado is the best because of the workflows. And then even through the process, it's like I set the start date. So like a week before our project start date, it sends them an email that's like, hey, heads up, we're starting in a week. Like, have you looked at everything in the Slack channel? Like, did you answer these questions? Have you gone through this? So then that's done. Then like the day of the project, it's like, we're here, we're ready. Let's go. So excited. Don't forget our kickoff call this day. So even post the project, it's so great. And then like I put the end date of the project as well so that like, a week after the project ends, it's like, hey, just wanted to check in. Like, how's everything going since launch? Do you need anything? Hey, if you're feeling up to it, can you write us a review here? Gives a link to the little form that they can fill out. And then again, I have it set up to do like a 30-day follow-up after that, where it's like, how's everything going? I still exist. And then like a two-month. So like I have, I'm following up with clients without even trying and just like reminding them that I exist, which I think leans into that referral system that I have set up. And then second tool that I is my second brain is Notion. I can't live without it. I feel like people are either Evernote or Notion. And I feel like I leaned into Notion and I've tr- I tried so many things. I feel like I fell in love with Notion because it was the first tool that I felt like clients could manage easily on their own without me having to be like, okay, so now you're going to click here to look at this. It's like very intuitive for non-technical people. And it's easy to like check a box to like show things done and like set up a timeline for them to see. But I also have took a really amazing course called the Notion Mastery, which is this woman, Marie Paulin, who is like the Notion God, I like to say. She's incredible. And that course helped me to create a full dashboard for myself where like all my tasks are linked, all my projects are linked, everything. I don't have to think about anything. Like I can just be like new project and then all the tasks get added to my timeline with exact dates and formulas and all of this complicated stuff that like if I hadn't had that course would have been confusing, but has made my life so much easier and like allows me to do things so quickly and like if a client's late giving me feedback or something i just adjust the date and all of my to-dos get pushed back by a day so notion is a big one i also think there's this great app called markup which i use for all my web design clients and it allows you to actually put a link on there and then clients can comment directly on the website so rather than being like oh can you adjust this they can just click exactly with what they're seeing and if they have the chrome app as well which i always tell them to do it takes a screenshot so i can actually see what they're looking at which has been such a game changer because it was so difficult before to like try and understand what exactly they were talking about what they're seeing like i'm not seeing that bug but you're seeing it so like i can't fix something that i can't see so that's been a big game changer for me and lastly figma which i am team figma forever and will always be team figma because it's such a game changer and has replaced most of the adobe suite for me yeah for those who don't know the design world figma is basically like a competitor for pretty much anything adobe things like photoshop and illustrator and pretty much anything and i've seen a lot of designers move to that all of them yeah and i think it's because it's nice to just have a one all-in-one tool because some of my issues with Adobe is like the shortcuts are different between the five different apps. So it's like trying to remember like, is it command parentheses? Is it shift command? Like, it's just like too much. We're like Figma. It's like I can shortcut everything so easily. And it just, I also think that like clients like it as well. It's easy to prototype in there so I can actually make what will look like their website in the design rather than like jumping straight into development and trying to get them to picture what it's like and like being like, and then this will move like this. It's like, I can show you what that movement will look like. So I would say that those are, those are my tools. Those are my jam. And I've tried so many. You're speaking my, my love language now. It's like, I love nerding out about this stuff and just hearing you talk about uh, Dubsado, even Notion. I've tried Notion. I can't get into it. Dubsado, I've never experienced that. I do have a coaching client that uses it and loves it but I have been on the client end of HoneyBook, which is kind of similar. And I loved that experience of just like a really well thought out timeline and, and the process and flow is nice. To me, this is like, I could go on a whole entire episode with you about these sorts of things, like setting up Dubsado, setting up Notion courses and stuff, but we don't have a ton of time, but I would love to know kind of like going back to Dubsado because you kind of went through all those. I need to go back and re-listen to this because like that, I love that flow you've already mapped out. How long did it take you to set all that up? Because it's a lot, it's not like a lot of steps, a lot of automation, a lot of nerdy tech stuff, wizardry going on in the background. Like how long did it take you to get just Dubsado alone set up and ready to run in your business? So I had like a very simple version of Dubsado set up that was like working for me kind of. 
And then I had this girl, Fran, who runs a business called The Passions Collective, cold DM me and was like, hey, I noticed you use Dupesado. Like, I am a Dupesado expert. If you ever want somebody to go full force with it, I would love to do that. So I hired her to build that really complex, robust system. First of all, cold DM working. It worked on you and it's worked for you as well. So both ways there, which is, which is great. Can you give an idea of like timeline, how much it costs? Like just give me an idea for anyone who might be interested in setting up something like that. And maybe even, maybe even give her a shout out so people can go <laughs> if they want something similar built out. Yeah. So Fran from the Passions Collective, the best. It was like a two week process. We started with a call where I just told her my client process and she just took a bunch of notes. And then from there, she pitched me like, here's the exact workflows I think we should set up. Here's how it would work. Here's what would make your life easier. Sort of speaking to like the pain points and the opportunities that we could take. And it was, I'm pretty sure I, she charged me like 1600 in total, which like considering how much time she has saved me, she's not, Fran, if you're listening, you are not charging enough. You could absolutely charge more because I think that if I had tried to do it myself, it probably would have taken me like a full two weeks of like sitting down six to eight hours a day to make happen. And like, obviously she's an expert. It probably doesn't take her that long because she has all of this set up and she knows how it works, but it would have taken me that long. So it was worth paying that to then also have it now where all I have to do is push a button to do something that used to take me like an hour of a day. And like all this constant, like, where's this at? What's happening? It's like all of it just is done for me and I don't have to think about it. That's something I think too, sometimes we as freelancers forget is like we can pay other people to do the things that we don't want to do. I was going to say that seems to be a trend for you is like you hired a brand designer to do your stuff. You hired a copywriter to write your copy. You hired a Dubsado expert to set up all your stuff. So it's a one click to do all these amazing things. We didn't even get to talk about this, but you even hired a Pinterest manager to manage your Pinterest stuff, which we probably don't have time to get into today, but that's just a thing that you you do. Is that just a natural move for you? Is like, I'm going to hire for this or do you have to force yourself to do it? Like, What's your thought process around hiring? Yeah, it's, it's pretty natural for me. I think that like I see value in not working. Yeah, that's actually a wonderful quote. <laughs> it's like I don't want to do things that I don't want to do. So it's worth paying somebody to do it. So I think that it's very easy and natural for me. And I'm sort of seeing myself even in the business, like progress towards more of a creative director and being like less hands-on and allowing the business to run without me kind of thing and like allowing myself to do the things that I want to do. And I think it also is that like business mentality of like, there's a great book called like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if anybody's heard of that, but it's incredible. And it basically just tells you that like the way like rich people think is like you can just pay somebody to do stuff and you don't have to and like let your money work for you rather than like feeling like you have to do everything. So I think that I have that mentality in my business as well as like I don't have to do everything, nor do I have to do things that I don't like. So it's worth letting somebody else do it right the first time rather than trying to figure it out for myself. Just pay somebody to do it well. I, I love that book. And it was one of my like early formative reads and like kind of shifted my brain about being an entrepreneur and specifically like investing in things like real estate. And in the real estate world, that book is legendary. Everyone has read that book in the real estate world, which is funny but it really applies to any sort of business. This is a struggle for me is like naturally hiring people to do things because I'm so self-reliant. I grew up so taking full responsibility for everything and I have to do it. There was a book I read, I can't remember the name of it, that kind of helped me line up all the tasks I do day to day. And it was like, it's like a a column for all the things that uh, you hate to do, all the things that you do that maybe you don't love, but take up time. And then the, the column of things that only you could do. And it's a surprisingly small amount of things in that third column. Oh, that's the other column, things that you're bad at. That was the other column. Getting rid of the things you're bad at or the things you hate to do are like the first two things that have to go. And sometimes you can just eliminate it and be like, I don't actually have to ever do this again and no one needs to do it. But then like, just hiring out help. It's so good to get this off your plate and in other people's hands, especially when they're better at it than you. Like you said yourself with, with Dubsado or Dubsado, I don't know how you pronounce it, but whenever you're setting that up, you were okay with it. You could get it going a little bit. You had a little basic setup there, but hiring an expert at a little less than she probably should have charged at 1600 was more than worth getting all that stuff set up for you so that you'd have to think about it. It was just done and it was working really well for you. On top of that, does that only work if you have like specific packages you're offering? Because everything has to be tailored around those specific packages. Or what if you have like a, a crazy one-off thing that you're doing that doesn't really fit your normal template? Yeah. So it's actually, that's something she taught me before I was like 
when she came on, I had like 150 different things because some clients want this little thing or they don't want this or like, oh, change this deliverable. But it's when you set it up right, you can go directly into your templated proposal and just adjust it for that specific proposal. So like it is so easy. And I actually have a few like service-based clients who then I've now set them up in Dupsado as well and made their lives easier because I think that like Anybody who's offering a service can actually benefit from Dubsado because it will just allow you like photographers and anybody like who is having people pay them for things. You can set it up so that like you can make adjustments and you can do different services and like just make your life so much easier. You need to get an affiliate link for that. Yeah, it's easy. It's okmica.com slash discount dash codes. It's got all of my favorite apps on there. Again, I could probably nerd out with you all day about this stuff. We should probably wrap this up, but like. We, we already gave out your affiliate link for Dubsado. Is there any, anywhere else you want people to go to learn more about you or connect with you? Or like, where do you want our audience to go if they want to say something to you or say, hey, or hire you or anything? Yeah, if you want to hire me, go to okmica.com and click work with us and fill out an application. And if you just want to connect with me, I would love to connect on Instagram, which my Instagram handle is okmica with three H's at the end. Send me a DM. I'm always down to chat, community, all sorts of things. Just like if you have questions, if you're curious, if you're like, it's freelance for me. I'm down to talk. We can have a long conversation and connect. And this actually leads to a question I forgot to ask in the interview, and we're going to end with this. What happens when you get a court request in that you deny? Do you have an absolutely not button that just sends them a polite rejection email? Or what happens when when you turn down a project and decide, oh, Yeah. When I deny them, it sends an email that's like the subjects like your project inquiry. And then it's like, thank you so much for reaching out. Unfortunately, I don't think we're aligned on this project. If you need suggestions for other designers that I think would be more in line with it, let me know. Thank you so much. I love that because I I always have an issue with that as I do have kind of templates for that sort of stuff, but it feels less intense for me if I can hide behind a button that just says deny and then let the system handle it. And I can just move on with my life. There's too many times where I didn't reply to a bad inquiry where I should have let them down nicely. And instead I didn't, you know, this is old Brian speaking here, but I like the idea of having a, a no button, a no thanks. But anyways, thank you so much for coming on, Mike. This is a wonderful conversation. And uh, I definitely love to have you back on an, in a future interview if you're happy to come back. I would love to. This was so much fun. You're the best. You're the best.